Ever wonder if your life counts for much? In a world that is concentrated on those who are rich and famous and powerful, sometimes the question can be, what is my place in the broad sweep of things? How important am I, really? And how significant has my life been or will it be? Now, a few reflections this morning on the little book of Ruth in the Old Testament. Now, it's a simple story, but it's profound, as in so many of these things. And it deals with the dailiness or the everydayness of our lives. The book of Ruth is situated in the period of the Judges. It begins with this verse, it says in chapter 1, verse 1, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Now, when the judges were ruling Israel, there were some good judges, and there were periods of peace and calm and stability. But there were a large number of them that were like the kings. There were some good, there were some bad. But by the time you get to the end of the book of Judges, it says this in Judges 21 verse 25, Every man did what was right in his own eyes. It's a good description. It's a sense of the self-focusedness of the people had become such that every little person was an island of selfishness. They did what was right in their own eyes. There was no sense of community, a larger whole. And it speaks very much into our situation as we live in it now. The book of Ruth is not by any, any means the story of majestic uh, people. There are no charismatic prophets. There are no splendid kings. There are no uh, fiery judges. Just a plain story of two widows and a farmer. Now, these three people are the essential characters in the book of Ruth, and their lives are woven into the fabric of what God is accomplishing in and amongst his people and through his people, which is what the essence of my, my talk is this morning. It's through the ordinary actions of your life and my life, our common lives, that the purpose of salvation is accomplished. Now, when we look at the broad sweep of Scripture, it can often seem like it's a hugely star-studded cast. There's Abraham and Isaac and Joseph and Moses and Joshua and Samuel and David and Solomon. And the list can carry on with the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and so on. Then there's Jesus and Paul and John and Peter, um, larger-than-life figures. And even if we bring that all the way up to date with Mother Teresa, and you get the drift. There, there is a sense sometimes that we look at these people and we think, Mm, I just don't match because that's the kind of culture that our society has bred. We, we, we adulate all those who seem to have made it big. And then comes Ruth, this little book that is slipped in between uh, the pages of our scriptures, which, as I said, is just a story about two widows and a farmer. Now, Ruth is in some senses, a inconsequential outsider. If you think of her, and I want to encourage you to go and read it, it's just a couple of pages, it won't take you long, and just to reflect on it, but she is poor, she's 
um, uh, obscure. She's an outsider in the sense that she's an alien from another country. She's a widow. And her life is what we would describe as being on the bottom tier of society. And yet, her life is essential in the complete telling of the story of salvation. I'll say that again because that's the heart of this this morning. Her life, Ruth's life, is essential in the full telling of the story of salvation. When you read in the last few verses of the book of Ruth, there's only four chapters, but in verse 13 of chapter 4 it says, So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. Then he went to her and the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. Um, further on in verse 17 it says, The woman living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. Naomi was Ruth's uh, uh, mother-in-law. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse and the father of David. Just that sentence, and the father of David. And she's placed directly into the whole thrust of God's purpose in the scriptures and indeed the whole of history. Now, it's exactly the same for you and I. We look at this picture of Ruth with hindsight, and so did the children of Israel. But while Ruth was living the story, it wasn't exactly the easiest of stories to live in. We tend to have rose-colored spectacles when we look back on things, and we've been able to sift out all the heartache and the hardship. And I can remember um, when I was in the army, it was terrible. I didn't enjoy it one bit, really. But years later, when you are around a fire and you're barbecuing a piece of meat and you reminisce and you talk about it and you laugh and you think, oh, it wasn't so bad. No, yes, it was. It wasn't good. But the truth is that when you, when you concertina life and you pull out certain things, it's easy to see it as, well, you don't see the texture and the, and the depth of the stuff that's going on there. Ruth's life was a life that was not easy. But God takes her life, her outsider type of life, and makes it part of his whole, his whole salvation history. So Ruth, in some senses, is a modest story, but it's a significant part of the great epic of God's purpose. Now, here's the interesting thing. The book of Ruth is formally read every year all throughout the history of Israel, at a particular point in the calendar year, they stop and they read the book of Ruth. It's at Pentecost. And they read this as part of the harvest festival and the celebration of life. But this little book that's tucked away in the Old Testament is the focus of a huge celebration of the whole community coming together. So, it's a simple but prominent story in the life of Israel. Now, Pentecost was 50 days after the Passover, and it was a celebration of the covenant, the renewal of the covenant, um, the Exodus 19 and 20 with Moses receiving the Ten Commandments was, was reread, and they, they looked back on their history of Egypt. They rehearsed all of that. They looked forward to the promised land, and they were, in essence, they stopped at this point in the harvest to celebrate God's goodness 
and his provision and the extension by extension into the next year. But their everyday understood that their everyday life defined by the covenant was living out God's purposes for the whole of humankind. Every year, in a formal sense, they came back to remember the story, to rehearse it. And for us, it's the same. Ruth helps us to find our place in the story of God. So just again to say, go and read it. Meditate on it. Just uh, let it percolate for you. But just a few comments then this morning. Firstly, there is a correspondence between the way in which God acts and the way in which we and others act. And let me just explain briefly like this. It makes more sense if, you, if you've read chapter 2 and 3 with Ruth's uh, interactions with Boaz, her uh, nearest kinsman, uh, a, a, re- a relative who was uh, sort of portioned off to help um, the poorer side of the family. Um, but in chapter 2, verse 12, Ruth has been gleaning in Boaz's fields, and um, Boaz speaks to her and talks about the fact that um, he, he asks, May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Now, in a sense, Boaz is blessing her and extending a sense of God's blessing upon her and trusting her to that. But then as you read further into the next chapter, and I'm not going to go into the detail now, but there's a time in which Ruth comes to Boaz, and in chapter 3, she says to him, I am your servant Ruth. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are my kinsman redeemer. Now, the word in Hebrew is the same word. The word that Boaz has used to bless Ruth and say, God bless her. Ruth comes back at him and says, I want you to be the one who, who spreads your wings over me. You to be the one who is the protector for me. And essentially what is happening here is that there is a joining together and a correlation between the blessing of God and our action. It forces us, in this sense, to recognize the things that Boaz promises Ruth that God will do for her are worked out when Ruth comes to Boaz and says to him, won't you do that for me? We are the instrument in God's hands for the blessing of those around us. It's our responsibility to live in such a way that salvation comes, not just in terms of eternal life and a life with God in heaven for those around us, but that God is is materially coming through us in our acts of kindness and love and generosity, in the fact that we bring peace and, and stability, that God is made present and real in people's lives through the action and the activity and the presence of his people in a world that is broken, in a world that has come to the place where every man does what is right in his own eyes.
And then God provides through every single ordinary encounter. Our lives, your life and my life, is essential for the complete telling of the whole salvation story. Our everyday things that look inconsequential half the time are the things that bring about the full purpose of God in this world. Now, every person has to find their way into that story. And if you go and read the book of Ruth, um, Naomi, the mother-in-law, Ruth and Boaz, all three of them have different ways of entering into the story, different ways of beginning in, in this whole process. But God takes each one of them and weaves them into this tapestry of life. And I think behind and in the background to all of the story is the fact that the present is always pregnant with God's presence. Even if we can't particularly see it, even if in the moment it appears to be a very dark and rocky road. Naomi, for example, comes into the story of salvation by complaining. Now that doesn't sound like the best way to start something, but she has experienced deep and profound loss. We read verse 1 of chapter 1 about the fact that in those days, in the days of the judges, there was a famine in the land. So what happens is Naomi's husband, Elimelech, picks up his two sons and takes Naomi and the two boys out of Israel into Moab, looking for just survival, essentially. And they grow up there, and eventually both the boys take a Moabite woman, um, Orpah and Ruth, to be their wives. And it seems to be such a happy family. It seems to, things seem to have worked out. But then Elimelech dies. And then both the boys die. And Naomi is left having grieved both her husband and both her sons. And she has two daughters-in-law that she has now on her hands, as it were. But the storyteller takes her unhappiness seriously. It's not as if he, he wants her to just gloss over this. We live deeply into that situation. It talks about 10 years that this happens. And she has a complaint against God. Eventually, the story, as the story unfolds, she goes, she decides, she hear, hears that things are much better in Bethlehem where, where she used to live with her husband. And she, she starts to go back with both her daughter-in-laws. Then she sends them back to their, uh, their, their own homes. Ruth clings to her in a famous passage in chapter 1, says to, to, to Naomi, Wherever you go, I'll go, and so on. You must go and read it. It's quite, it's quite a brilliant commitment to your relationship. But Naomi goes back to Bethlehem with Ruth. And when she gets there, the whole town, it says, celebrates. Except for Naomi. She's still got a gripe. She says, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant and lovely. Call me Mara, which means bitter. That's where she had got to. This is how the circumstances had affected her at this point. It seems almost impious, blasphemous perhaps, but it's common in Scripture for us to be able to list our grievances if you read the Psalms. It's another thing. And yet, all the way through till the end of the story, in chapter 3, verse 17, when 
uh, Boaz is busy blessing um, uh, Ruth, he says to, to Ruth, uh, Ruth says to, to, to Naomi, beg your pardon, that Boaz has given her six measures of barley, saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Even when she's not aware of it, God is beginning to provide for her into her future. And by the time you get to chapter 4, as we read earlier on in verse 17, her emptiness is reversed. And she becomes party to the whole thrust of salvation history because her grandson through Ruth is Obed. And Obed's son is Jesse, who is David's father. She has a future. She's part of something far larger and greater than herself. And Ruth is the same. Ruth gets into the story in a different way. Ruth gets into the story by literally grabbing onto and asking for what she wants and what she thinks is right. Now in chapter 1, as I just alluded to a few minutes ago, she gets into the story by, by saying to Naomi, I'm going to stick with you, Naomi. Wherever you go, your God is going to be my God. There's this intense commitment that she makes, not knowing what the future looks like. The uncertainty of being, as I said, an alien, an outsider, a widow in a land that she has no concept of at that stage. And in chapter 3, verse um, 2 to 4, you see um, the process of her encounter with Boaz and how she challenges Boaz to take responsibility for her. In verse 8 and 9, she says, um, I am your servant Ruth. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are my kinsman redeemer. And he says to her, The Lord bless you, my daughter. She takes the initiative. She says to him, in essence, I want, I want you to marry me. I want you to spread the wings of your garment over me, as I said earlier, as God has, you had suggested that God should do for me. I think it's your responsibility. And I think it's important to recognize here that, that Ruth has gone through intense tragedy. She has really... Um, She's been gleaning as someone who is less than a servant in the fields, picking up little bits of grain in order to exist on. And yet she doesn't see herself as a victim. There is within Ruth this deep and profound sense of understanding that there's something larger at work here. And I think what it speaks to us of is that being in God's story does not mean that we just let things happen to us passively. We can be active. We can, be, we can take initiative. We can be um, on the front foot, uh, if you like. Yes, there's stuff that happens to us. All of us have stuff that we have to deal with. And six times in this passage, Ruth is called a Moabitess. And I'm not going to go into the kind of um, almost racial slur that would have been as an alien, as a foreigner, as an outsider, as a widow, um, and being poor and unknown in those parts. But she steps out and in, in a very profound way creates her own future, takes the initiative. Ruth gets into the story, full stop. And I think sometimes... We, we are like Naomi. 
where we moan and complain about stuff, and yet even behind the scenes God is doing something. Maybe we should be sometimes a little bit more like Ruth, where we look up and look around to what's around us and say, where can I take the initiative? What can I do? And not be such um, so, so prone to, to being victims and just saying, well, what can I do about it? And then there's Boaz. Good old Boaz. I like Boaz. He goes about his business as a man who, as you read through chapter 2 and chapter 3 and into chapter 4, a man of integrity, of character. Clearly a man of some wealth. But he's willing to take a new responsibility. He's willing to, to go... He's, he, he's, he's obviously got lots on his plate. But he's looking out and he's taking care of those around who are not in as privileged a position as he. He has a good reputation, clearly. He has a solid prosperity. And he seems to be on good terms with a whole vast array of different people as you read the story carefully. His name actually means, in him is strength. I think the question is, do people of substance, people of wealth, look only to themselves? Or do they care for those around, whatever we call them, widows, aliens, outsiders, the poor, doesn't matter what terminology you use. But before you start thinking, oh, well, I know some people who are rich. Each one of us who are being able to listen to this or watch this are wealthy in a range of different ways. We need to take responsibility for our prosperity, for all the gifts that we've been given, to raise our heads and say, where is my responsibility in this whole process? Had in, in the story of God's salvation, what is my responsibility? Lord, what do you want me to do? And to go beyond just allowing things to happen, maybe even the letter of the law, to say, how can my life be richer, more full, more graceful, more kind? Use what has been given to you. It's whatever is in your hand. Do something with it. Now, there's Naomi, there's Ruth, there's Boaz, there's others. But we all have to get into the story of God's purpose for our lives. Anyone can get into the story. Now, I just want to remind you of the conclusion again. As Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap. This is the little child who is Ruth and Boaz's son. And she said, the woman there saying, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse and the father of David. And then there is the line of David. The, the book of Ruth ends off with a genealogy. Not perhaps the most um, devastatingly profound conclusion to a story. But in another way, it is. Because... As they step the way through to David, the implication for us as we read it with the vantage point of history is that David was the father of Solomon and it goes all the way through to Jesus. And it goes all the way through to me.
and to you. You see, this genealogy, this story of uh, one person and another person and the next person is larger than just your journey or my journey of faith. It's the broader sweep of the whole of salvation history. I am a single detail in the whole story of the Alpha and the Omega. I am a thread in the tapestry of life. And every year at Pentecost, the children of Israel would be gathered together and they would rehearse, they would remember, they would be reminded, every single one of them, that they have a role and a place in the salvation of God, in the bringing of His purpose and His presence into the lives of the whole of society and of history. Now, I've said lots of things about that today, but I just want to end off by saying this again. Your faithful life and mine is essential for the complete telling of the story of salvation.